first thing? Boom, gospel unleashed. <laughs> All right, mountains, mountains. All these things have to do with mountains. Um, I reckon these guys, they're the Himalayas. My friends are not quite in the Himalayas. <laughs> but for those who do, I reckon they're getting something that we're not. Because mountains are beautiful. Mountains are majestic. They're awe-inspiring works of God, aren't they? You look at that and you go, wow. Um, there's something beautiful, there's something powerful. But there's something hard about that as well. They're, they, they're challenging. Um, and I want to say today, uh, if the Bible is a mountain range, then Romans is the Himalayas. And if Romans is the Himalayas, then Romans chapter 3 is Mount Everest. Because in Mount Everest, uh, well, in Romans chapter 3, we see the pinnacle of the Bible. We see the peak of what the Bible is on about. It's the glorious summit. And the question is, what is it about Romans 3 which is so important, which is so special? Um, because sometimes life can feel a bit like a mountain range, can't it? We face all kinds of challenges in life, all kinds of ups and downs. Uh, things like questions that arise in life. And the questions of life, I think, are the, are the hills and the ups and downs, the mountains. Marriage, relationships. Uh, what relationships are good for me? What relationships should I be in? What should I do for a job, for a career? Should I change my course? Should I keep going with my course? Should I travel overseas? Should I save my money? What should I do with my kids' education? Should we have kids? The questions of life are endless, but that's what life is, isn't it? It's questions and answers and challenges and ups and downs. Now, the reason Romans 3 is so crucial, because I think it answers the biggest question. It's the Mount Everest question of life. And that is this. How do guilty sinners get right with a just God? That is the Mount Everest question of life. There's heaps of questions, but that is the biggest one. How do guilty sinners get right with a just God? And there's three parts to how I want to answer it, and there's three parts that we see in this passage. The first is we're justified, we're made right. That's what that word means, justified. It means to be made right. It's kind of a legal term. I'm going to keep touching on that. Um, The first point is that we're justified by God's free gift. It's free. The second one is that our justification isn't cheap. And the third one is that we receive it through faith. That's where we're going. This first one is our justification is free. Now, you guys have been looking at Romans, haven't you? We got it? Boom. Um, I'll stop saying boom, too. You guys have been looking at Romans, right, for three or four weeks now. And you're probably pretty sick of the pattern. If you've been here regularly, there's been a pattern, right? It's been something like this. You and me are not, aren't okay, actually. We're in a bad place. Jew, Gentile, all people are in trouble with, with God. We're guilty of sin, and that's not good news. It's not good news because we've got no way of fixing it. So it's been, how do we get right with God? It's been, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. Week after week, there's no matter religion, there's no matter good things you can do, sacrifice, there's no matter anything you can do to get right with God. And then along comes what we just had read for us. Romans 3, verse 3.21, and says this, But now, but now, so this is the start of the summit. This is the glorious pinnacle. But now, something has changed. Something new is taking place. And we need to pay attention. What is this new thing? But now, something massive is happening. And I want to kind of think of it like this. 
We're separate from God, and there's a big door between us and God. And these two words are like the hinges on that door, and it's starting to open. It creaks open with these two words, but now. And I'll show you how significant this passage is and has been thought of throughout history. Um, 500 years ago, Martin Luther, kick-started the Reformation, and he said of these kind of ten verses that they are the chief point of the whole Bible. The whole Bible. Last century, uh, English pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said that this passage is the Acropolis. Is that right? Acropolis? That's a thing, right? That's the Greek, big Greek. Yeah, we'll run with it. It is. It's confirmed. It's, it's that big Greek monument. Anyway, of the whole Bible. I think that he's saying it's pretty significant. Um, I should sound more convinced on that, shouldn't I? (laughs) How about this one? American pastor John Piper, you might have heard of him. He says about this. He says, There are great sentences in the Bible, and great paragraphs, and great revelations, but it doesn't get any greater than this paragraph here in Romans. You hear that? This is important. We've got to pay attention. So let's keep looking at it. It says, but now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. Attested by the law and the prophets, that is, God's righteousness through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe, since there's no distinction. See what it's saying? It's saying there is a way. There is a way, and it doesn't rely on you. There is a way to be right with God, and it's not about law or being good or practicing religion. Because those things aren't enough. As I said before, the image we need to have, take with us with these words, they're describing a legal scenario, a law court. And verse 21 is saying, what you cannot do, what you cannot do, be acceptable, be acceptable before God, God declares to you. He declares, He gives you His righteousness. He declares you to be righteous. Even though you're not. That's amazing. Even though you're not, you are said. God says, you are righteous, even though you're not. This is amazing. It's that unfathomable grace of the gospel that guilty sinners receive God's righteous declaration. That's justification. And it's uh, it's not just that um, our sin is taken away. It's definitely that. But this is more than that. This is that we actually receive a positive verdict when we don't deserve it. We actually receive the credit of having achieved the law, which we haven't. Um, one theologian, Marcus Lone, once described it like this, the difference between forgiveness and justification. Justification is what we're thinking about. He says, The voice which spells forgiveness will say, You may go. You've been let off. The penalty which your sin deserves is paid for. But the verdict which spells justification will say, You may come. You are welcome to all my love, to all my presence. See, it's more than just cancelling a negative. It's receiving a positive declaration before God. And what follows after this, we hear, we read that it's attested by the law and the prophets. That's pretty much just saying that this point here, the whole Bible points to this, justification through faith. The whole Bible. There wasn't a way that the that people Israel became you know, right with God in the Old Testament, and now this is how we become right with God. No, it's all pointing to Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. I'm going to read verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. We've been there, right, the last few weeks. And they are justified freely by His grace. They are great words. Great words to memorize. That's our first point. God justify, justifies sinners 
by a free gift. It's a free gift. It's His grace. Now I want to share with you a few words from some different kind of famous dudes who um, and some, one understood it and one didn't. So I'll let you work out uh, a little bit from what they say. So here's a guy. Who knows who this is? Anyone? Someone shout it out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> got some participation. Lance Armstrong, boom. All right. <laughs> That's Lance Armstrong. All right, so Lance Armstrong, you know a little bit about Lance and his... A little bit? Yeah, well, I'll just recap. Lance, super famous cyclist, right? Fought cancer. Then more recently was found to have been using drugs to win all his cycling um, awards. So pretty tragic end, really. But this is what Lance Armstrong wrote in an autobiography before he was found out that he was cheating, but during his fight with cancer. This is what he said. He said, The night before brain surgery, I thought about death. I searched out my larger values. I asked myself, if I was going to die, was I content with myself, with what I had lived for so far? Get this. I decided I was essentially a good person. I asked myself what I believed. I'd never prayed a lot. I'd hoped hard. I'd wished hard. But I didn't pray. Quite simply, I believe I had the responsibility to be a good person, and that meant being fair, honest, hardworking, and honourable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, if I gave back to some community cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat, or a thief, then I believe that that should be enough. So who's Lance trusting when he stands before God in the courtroom of God for his justification? He's trusting in himself, isn't he? He's counting on his own record. Now, I want you to compare that with another face you might recognize. We know who this is? Bono, yeah? Max, you had it. Points for Max. Um, Bono. Now, listen to what Bono says in an interview. He says, The thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or in physics, physical laws every action being met by an equal and opposite reaction. So it's clear to me, as Bono speaking, that karma is at the heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea of grace. To upend all that, as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of our actions. In which case, he says, is very good news for me, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Now that got the interviewer really excited. And he says, well, I'm interested to hear about that. And Bonnie says, well, that's between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I don't have a hope if it depends on my religiosity. That's, that's Bono. So does, you see the difference. While Lance is hoping that he's good enough. He says, I decided I was essentially a good person. But Bonnie gets that he isn't, doesn't he? He can see, he can be honest with himself. He says, I'm holding out for grace. So how do sinners get right with a just God? It's verse 24. We see it right in front of us. It's grace. We're justified freely by his grace. And the question is, have you realized this? Have you realized this? Maybe you've been a Christian a while, um, and maybe you start to forget this. And I think a way we can forget this, I've been a Christian a while, and I feel like 
There's been times in my life where I haven't really understood this clearly. We start to merge the idea that we live the Christian life out of another big word, which we don't really come up in this passage, but it's a word you might have heard of, sanctification, living the Christian life. My commitment to Jesus, to serving the church, to attending, to being a Christian in the world, starts to kind of become something that I rely on, I put my confidence in when I stand before God. But this passage is saying, you've got to separate that. That has got nothing to do with what this is saying. You are justified freely by His grace. Nothing you can do can contribute to that. Nothing at all. Remember, you are justified freely. It's completely separate from you. That's what I want to say to you if maybe you started to notice the two. But maybe you're here and you're a skeptic. And you're thinking, you know, you're talking about free, but nothing's free. And I'll say, you know, you're probably right. Most of the time, nothing is free. But this is free. That's what grace is. It's a free gift. And I'll tell you, it's a terrible business strategy. If you go into business, don't give your product away. But it's the only justification strategy. It's what? It's the only way we can be saved because we have nothing to offer. God freely gives us the status of righteous. That's a great, wonderful thing. So this is the idea. We've said justification. It's kind of a legal term. So I want you to picture a court. And you imagine a court. What is meant to happen in the court? Well, the guilty come and they receive their verdict and they're penalised. The innocent come and they should be vindicated, right? Set free. But the thing is, what's happening here is the opposite. We're guilty and we're receiving grace. Now, how does that work? That's not how it should happen in a courtroom, right? So the question is, this is grace. This is scandalous. Grace is actually offensive. The question about justice then is, how can God justify the guilty and still be just himself? How can he still be just if he's going to let evil people off? That brings us to our second point. Although our justification is free. It comes at a great, great cost. Get my slide working, maybe. Boom. We got it. So let's have a look at the next few verses. Verse 24 and 25. Our justification comes at a great cost. It says, They're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 25. God presented Him as a propitiation through faith in His blood. There's a couple of big words in there, which we're going to kind of break down, and they're important for understanding justification. First is redemption. There's redemption and propitiation. Redemption, um, one way to kind of contextually understand this is that in, um, in the ancient world, if you owe people heaps of money, uh, there wasn't a bankruptcy law, there wasn't any kind of safeguards. You owe somebody heaps of money, you lose everything. So you lose your property, you lose your job, you lose anything you owned. And then you lose your freedom. You became their slave, you had to work for them. And this word redemption is that if you work for them long enough, you might be able to buy back your freedom. You might be able to. Sometimes you never could. So slaves could be bought and sold, and the cost to buy a slave, to buy them out of their slavery, was a redemption cost, a redemption price. And it would be a complete transformation for that person, from slave to free. And Paul says, at the heart of the Christian message, the heart of it, is a, a transaction. We're guilty sinners, slaves to sin. That, that's what we were, right? Guilty, slaves to sin, are purchased in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. Redemption. Guilty sinners purchased in Jesus Christ. 
And Paul then explains then, how is this redemption paid? Verse 25. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. So there's our other big word, propitiation. And it's a word, you know, you guys I'm sure are using every day. You know, propitiating this, Harley's been propitiating other things. <laughs> Obviously it's not, right? Propitiation. But one way to think about it is a helmet. Oops, a helmet uh, you wear when you're cycling or you're skating. A helmet absorbs an impact. That's what a helmet does. See, the helmet propitiates the, the anger, if you want to say, of the road. The helmet absorbs the impact between your head and the road. That's what a helmet does. It propitiates between your head and the road. And God says that he presented him, that is Jesus, as the propitiation through faith in his blood. That is Jesus, God's son, takes the wrath, that's what propitiation is, absorbing wrath, takes the wrath of the Father as payment for our sin. So this idea that God is wrathful, and that his wrath needs to be propitiated, that means his wrath needs to be absorbed through bloodshed, is a really, really unpopular idea. People of atheist writers want to point at Christianity and say, how barbaric, how can Christians believe this? How can their God do this? We've probably heard of this guy, Richard Dawkins, before. He points his finger at this as one thing which disgusts him. And he says this, he says, You're telling me the creator of the universe couldn't think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust and have himself tortured and executed so he could forgive himself? It's petty. He goes on, If God wanted to forgive sin, why not just forgive it? Does, does Dawkins have a point? If, I, if one of my sons does something wrong, I don't have to hurt the other one to forgive him. Let's think on that. But it's not just atheists, atheists who are saying this. Supposedly Christian writers are also pointing at this and saying, how can this be? It's barbaric. One writer of a pretty famous book called The Shack. We heard of that book before. Some of you might have seen it. It's even been a movie recently. But he's a um, supposedly a Christian writer, William Paul Young. And it sold 20 million copies. Super influential. And he was interviewed and the interviewer asked him about this, about the death of Jesus. And this is what happens. The interviewer says, So do you believe that Christ was punished for our, then for our sin? And Young says, Well, I believe that Christ became sin for us. That is, identified with our sin, but not really punished. The interviewer asks again, I mean that he was a sacrifice, that he was punished, that he took. And Young interrupts, uh, By who? Who was he punished by? The interviewer said, The Father. And Young says, why would the Father punish the Son? So it's not just atheists here. This guy's writing a Christian book. He's got issues with his punishment idea. And the last one, a pretty um, popular young Christian musician, Michael Gungor, he tweeted this last year and it got a bit of attention. He said, if you can't think of anything to sing to God about other than gratitude for taking your shame away through bloodshed, then stop singing. Look around. He was saying, he's saying, why are we always singing about the blood of Jesus? Isn't there other things to sing about? So these are voices in society, Christian, non-Christian, guys saying that they're Christians, who have serious issues with verse 25. And what I'm saying to you now is that the idea contained in this verse is the most important idea in the Bible. 
It is. The most important idea. And these guys don't want to hear it. Propitiation, the wrath of God being turned away, is so important for our salvation, for our justification. I want you to imagine that courtroom again. Someone's been brought into a courtroom and they've done a horrendous crime. They've done they've been a serial rapist or a serial murderer, serial abuser, horrendous crime. And what would we say if a judge just said, I can see that he's sorry, I think we're going to just forgive him? What would you say? Would you be happy with that? That's what Dawkins suggests. Let's just forgive him. No, there'd be outrage, wouldn't there? We'd be outraged. If the perpetrator came into court and said, hey, I'm sorry, just forgive me, what message would that communicate to the victims of their crime if we said, let's just forgive him? What does it say about their evil that they've committed? It says, you don't matter. What's been done to you, the wrong that's been done, the pain that's been caused in your life, doesn't matter. None of us, none of us wants a judge that just forgives. That's not justice, is it? And plenty of people want to say, I believe in a God of love and not anger. But what does it say to the victims of injustice if God isn't angry at evil? It says that he thinks their lives are worth nothing. Now, someone that best expresses this is a guy named Gary Hagen. And, and Gary Hagen founded the International Justice Mission. You might have heard of that. And he led the UN Nations, United Nations uh, investigation into genocide in Rwanda in the 90s. And it's, if you remember that, it's, I think it was 1994, it's absolutely horrific. In 100 days, 800,000 people were slaughtered. Absolutely brutal. Absolutely brutal. And he wrote about his experience, about, and he wrote about justice. And this is what he says. I'm just going to quote him. So standing with my boots deep in the reeking mud of a Rwandan mass grave, where thousands of innocent people had been horribly slaughtered, I have no words, no meaning, no life, no hope, if there is not a God of history and time who is absolutely furious, absolutely burning with anger towards those who took it in their own hands to commit such acts. You know what he's saying? There has to be a God of justice. There has to be a God who's angry at evil. There has to be. That's what verse 25 is saying. For God to be just, he has to have wrath against sin and evil. And his wrath is paid for in blood. Now here's the thing. It's not your blood. And it's not my blood. It's Jesus' blood. Let me read it again. God presented him, Jesus, as a propitiation through faith in his blood. And now people have asked, does that make Jesus the victim, the passive victim in all of this? We need to pay attention to what the rest of the Bible says. And in John 10, Jesus says, nobody takes my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own. Nobody takes it away from me. I lay it down. See, on the night before Jesus' death, we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's with his friends. We see Jesus' agony at the prospect of bearing the wrath of his Father, bearing the wrath of God. And I just want to read a little bit from Mark uh, 14, starting at 32. It says, they, Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. 
And he says to his friends, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. See, he knows what's in front of him. He's fully human. So he experiences this real. His experiences are real. He's fully God. And he falls to his knees and he cries out to his father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. See, the cup is God's wrath and it lies before him. The punishment for all sin, not his sin, your sin, my sin. Jesus is staring down death and judgment. And in this moment, all the forces of evil are arrayed against him. And right now, in this moment, he can walk away. He could walk away, he could let go of you, he could let go of me. But he says to his father, not what I will, but what you will. He walks towards the cross, not away from it. So what, this is what it took to pay for your sin. This is what it took. So if you want, want to know if God loves you, look at this moment. Look at the cross where Jesus could have walked away in the garden, but he didn't. If you're struggling with doubt and uncertainty, if you're lacking assurance, look to this moment where he could have let you go. He could have let you bear your own sin, but he doesn't. If you're struggling to fight sin, if sin's creeping into your life, it's becoming habitual and you're not putting up a fight anymore, look at this moment. Look at the cost he paid for your sin. Because until you see the cost he paid, you'll never be able to live free from it. Look at the cost he paid for you to be redeemed. See, Jesus is the willing propitiation for your sin, for our sin. The Father puts forward the Son, and the Son willingly accepts. That's what's taking place. No one takes my life from me, he says in John 10, but I lay it down on my own accord. So this is the pain for, for sin. It's the satisfaction of wrath. And this, guys, I want to say this is the beating heart of the Christian message. This is it. This is the heart of the message. You're justified freely by grace. That's the first point. But grace comes at an unthinkable cost. The blood of Jesus. Now, this is what I really want you to see is, can you see how the wrath and the blood, they're both his. They're both his. He has to be angry with sin. Otherwise, he isn't good and he isn't just. But he shows his unfathomable love by making the blood that was shed his blood. Not our blood. And then verse 26, that's why it says, Therefore God is both righteous and able to declare us righteous, because our guilt has been paid for. He paid it, and we've been justified. It's done. It's done. That's justification. It's done. The question is, what ought to be our response? That brings us to our last point. And it's a quick one. Our response should be that we we'll receive justification through faith. That's what the text says. That justification comes through faith. We receive the costly free gift through faith. Verse 28, For we conclude that a man or woman is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justification comes to us through faith, and faith is just receiving this gift. God's grace. God's free gift. Faith isn't doing anything. It's done. It's trusting what is done. One way uh, that Jesus describes this receiving of the gift is in Mark 10. And he says it's that of a child. That's what he says. He says, unless you receive 
the kingdom of God like a child, then you'll never enter it. That makes us think, well, what is it about children that Jesus is pointing to? Well, it's their dependence. So have you ever taken a child out uh, you know, for lunch? Have you ever taken a child out for anything? Um, I took my kids out for breakfast yesterday, my boys, and I'll tell you what didn't happen. I'll tell you what didn't happen. There was no discussion on who's paying. There was no discussion on who's paying, right? Kids, they, they didn't know you're paying. They're just eating. There's no thought of it. They're totally dependent on you. They're totally dependent on you to pay. They come empty-handed. They offer nothing, absolutely nothing. And they need everything. And that is how we need to approach God. That's faith. Depending on Him to do what we cannot. God has justified us. He's brought us out of darkness. He's freed us from sin and despair. And we are declared righteous through what He's done. We can know Him as our Father. Not a Father that looks at us and is waiting for us to stuff up, but a Father who loves us before we've done anything. He looks at you and loves you. You don't have to do something to make Him happy with you. That's profound. He looks at you and loves you. So that's the role of faith in justification, is to be like a child, empty-handed, trusting God, trusting His free gift, but His costly gift, free gift of His grace. And Paul says, this faith, well, it prohibits the very nature of faith, prohibits boasting. There's no room for boasting. When you know you've got nothing to contribute, then you've got nothing to boast about. So I think... In this passage, we've seen the summit. We've seen the high point of the Christian faith. This is what Christianity is all about. And if you haven't, you don't know much about Christianity or just checking it out, then I want you to understand this is it. It's a free gift. But it's a costly gift. We've seen the summit and, and we've asked the question, how do guilty sinners get right with a just God? By that free gift. And God says, you are righteous because my son paid for it. So come to me and receive it. I'm going to pray. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to grasp the power of your love. What amazing love. Your grace that you declare us sinners who are guilty to be righteous because of what you've done. Thank you that you are both just and good and loving. That you didn't let us go, but you bore the penalty that we deserved such a cost. Lord, help us to live joyfully, guilt-free as your children. Lord, help us to live in response to what you've done that changed hearts, wanting to live a new life, a life that pleases you. We thank you so much for Jesus and what he's done. In Jesus' name, Amen. Friends, we've heard the word of God tonight. And the Bible